Welcome to another episode of Surviving Creativity with your hosts, Scott Kurtz, Corey Cassoni, and me, Brad Geiger. This is a new show all about following your dreams, being your own boss, and hopefully surviving the process. Surviving Creativity is made possible by patrons like you. If you like the show, support it. Go to survivingcreativity.com and pledge as little as a buck a podcast. You can find us on iTunes now. To download us to your favorite listening device, just head on over to iTunes and search for Surviving Creativity. This week, oh man, we've got a great lineup for you this week. We've got the wonderful Chris Schweitzer, author, teacher, and Quigley Down Under lookalike. I'm sorry I couldn't do that NPR thing anymore. I'm too excited. This guy, he's a former professor at Savannah College of Art and Design, and he's the creator of the wonderful Krogan series of books, as well as Creeps, a middle school horror mystery series coming from Abrams Amulet in the fall of 2015, and we're talking about critics. You got something to say about that? I thought not. It's Surviving Creativity, coming up next. Oh, man. What a week. Has anybody else had a hell of a week? It's oh been my a God. shit week. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. I just said it's been a week. It's been a shit week. Uh, shit week? I've been on the zany deadline schedule lately, which you all always are. You're webcomic people. Um, but it's been a not, not really leave the studio much week. Yeah. That, what, uh, a, what a treasure. Uh, what a, what a, <laughs> sounds like heaven to me. Because I've been vacationing with a fucking screaming Mimi. That's the worst, right? Coming back, from, coming back from vacation. It's like you need a vacation from your vacation. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I didn't really get a vacation. First, <laughs> my father came to fucking visit for a month with his dog. And... And got up at noon, wanted to eat lunch at two, dinner at <laughs> eight, Breakfast go to bed before. at go to bed at two a.m. one a.m. Play WoW all day, never get out of his pajamas, and then complain about why he always feels uh, uh, run down. What is he? Sixteen? Uh, uh, no, he just turned <laughs> seventy. Uh, then just for, further proof that life is cyclical, right? We yeah, all turn back yeah. into teenagers in our seventies. Then he left, and I got to go visit uh, my well, then my brother and his wife and his daughter came for a week and a half, and she went from being this adorable little baby to this fifteen-month-old petulant shit <laughs> that solves all of her problems by. <laughs> Doing an impression of a car alarm that's based on Fran Drescher and Rosie Perez's voice. <laughs> then I got to go with my brother back to Texas, a.k.a. Satan's asshole, on a plane, plane with a 15-month-old and my brother. <sighs> then I got to spend a week there with, with them. Um, and then I came back and I might be getting sick. Oh. So, being stuck inside drawing sounds pretty great, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I've, it's, it's a life I love. Our guest today, uh, in case you missed the 27-minute the intro, uh, as, <laughs> as Scott <laughs> likes to say, uh, famed cartoonist Chris Schweitzer, that, that 
beautiful bourbon and tobacco sounding voice you hear coming <laughs> through your microphone. It's good to have you, man. Thank uh, you so you and much. I, you and I have not talked in a very long time. I'm I'm really looking looking forward to to doing so. I I love the show and I uh, I I think I started listening about two two episodes in. Um, I mean I've I've listened to all of them, but I I really enjoyed. It. It's a good good uh, good show. Thank you. I was uh, watching. This is my intro for Chris Schweitzer. Okay, <laughs> I told Corey about. <laughs> I was watching Gladiator with my dad, and there's a line. <laughs> Where Marcus Aurelius asks Gladius to describe his home, home, home. And, and, and during his description, he says, Wild ponies play near my house. They tease my son, he wants to be one of them. And I thought, that's like. <laughs> <laughs> He's just this wild pony, just fucking drawing cartoons along the grapes <laughs> on the south slopes, just fucking teasing me. <laughs> and I want to be him. You were very kind, Scott. <laughs> I'm struggling here, and I'm like, I can, I think I can get this panel done without Brian Hurt's help. And then Chris is just running through the forest, like, <laughs> na, 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 na. here's another page. Oh, look at this fluid movement. You were, you were too kind, Scott. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think you're too kind. I'm not sure. Probably. Probably not. No, and then and then I, I follow you on Twitter, and if if you're not doing these amazing ink illustrations, you're 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 building model pirate ships by hand. I, I, not I mean, anymore. I, that's that's a, a <laughs> I, I feel like that, that was some sort of emotional deficiency that was made manifest in in uh, sort of a lot of preparatory work, um, and it's something I'm actually trying to work on. I think that it's uh, I I've got this kind of I've got a lot of confidence in what I do, but I also sort of have this uh, this terrible sense of failure due to being ill prepared, mm -hmm. um, and so I'll I'll end up going way overboard on preparedness stuff. And this 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 current book I think is the first time that it actually was really detrimental to me. I sort of went from it being a a benefit and in informing the work to to actually being a a real stumbling block to get over. And so I'm. I'm trying to move around that, but I I, I do like making the, the model ships. That, that's Wait, out, fun. Out of curiosity, when did it occur to you that 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 sort of uh, over preparedness was antithetical to to making to the actual doing of comics, well, the actual I, making of when comics? When I was when he started building <laughs> pirate ships out of mashed potatoes at the dinner table. <laughs> um, when when I was in grad school, um, one of my professors, Sean Crystal. Uh, I, I was talking about doing something. I was like, I'm having trouble like drawing the balance of people on a ship, and I'm thinking about just putting a piece of wood on a barrel and taking some pictures as to like how people stand up. And he's like, Don't be an idiot. There, you know, I know people that do do that sort of thing, and they start getting trapped by sort of self-made reference, and and uh, you know, you're you're capable of doing this. So it was always sort of in my head, but. Um, I was I was doing this last book and I made this like four and a half foot tramp steamer that's like built from scratch and which partially I just wanted to build a model tramp steamer so I mean it's it, there was also a hobby element involved in it um, but I was doing just these like sketches of this entire crew so so what I end up with is this book with about 130 individual unique like specific characters that have to be in every scene and 
the entire book is based around the geography of these very specific places, and there's a fleet of like twelve Chinese junks that are in constant. Ba- it's it's ridiculous. Mm. Um, and so I was going to we we started going to this church in Nashville. Um, it's an Episcopal church there, and Liz was they had like nine different Sunday school classes you can pick from, and Liz went to one that was. Uh, called the Enneagram uh, thing. And it was just like a little overview of this, uh, uh, this almost like uh, monk self, uh, uh, sort of a self-help thing, a self-awareness thing to determine what your cardinal sin is. Uh, Not so much to change it, but to be aware of where your motivations lie or something. And I was like, ah, whatever. I I like self-understanding stuff. I'll take the class. And so I did the little test, and Liz did it, and she had, like, three different answers, and I did mine, and it fit very squarely. It was, like, 99% this, and I was like, that's weird. And I looked at the, uh, the healthy <laughs> aspects, and it was like, it, it's like, at your very best, you're the, the type of person that I am. You're, like, you're Steve Jobs. Like, you, you come up with new ways of doing things and change the world. And then I was like, I, 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 but still in the healthy stage, it's like you're, you're doing – you're doing things that can be beneficial to others. You're you're happy and content with what you're doing. I was like, that's that's where I am. And then I started looking in the unhealthy category, and it was like, spends a lot of time in preparation before before <laughs> actually executing a project, builds <laughs> models like, and all this other stuff. And I was wow. like, is that unhealthy? And so I, I read up on it, and it was, uh, <laughs> and it was like, yeah, that's. All the problems oh, no. that it says are basically me, and it doesn't give any solutions. It's not a. It's not an intended to, to better yourself so much as a, a learn uh, why you, or to, to have a better understanding of why you do what you do. And I've never, I've never been to therapy, although I feel like I could probably benefit from it. I feel like probably most people should benefit from it. Um, and so that was sort of my. So I, I do sort of self long form therapy. That's probably not that efficient but um but this last book it's it's taken me the the newest krogan book um because of all the stuff that i've packed into it and it's just it's a sheer ridiculous amount um it's not any longer but it's just the content is so dense it's it's i'm only about halfway through it and i've been working on it for like two years and i used to pump out a book a year and it's just really not it's been a it's it's been a rough year or two so far as that goes <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my god oh my god what the fuck i'm so sorry we asked no no, no I, don't, I don't mean it I, it's i don't mean like i no i'm, I'm oh my god scott i'm as i'm as smiley as a person can be i'm not like i'm taking thorazine <laughs> now my wife left no no i just mean I get the kids on Wednesdays, <laughs> I'm, but I'm not building I'm any really, models, guys. I'm actually, I am happier than I than I have ever been. I'm loving just working all the time. Um, well, I just mean in terms it. of it, it's been a rough couple of years in terms of figuring out how I need to approach my schedule, what I need to do, how to make the most use of my time, um, and actually getting things accomplished. To fill in our uh, audience, we, we always do things backward here. Uh, Chris Schweitzer is is uh, the cartoonist, uh, the writer, illustrator of a series of books called the Krogan Adventure series that follows sort of the patriarchal line of uh, of an individual family through through the years from 
gosh, what the uh, your furthest it, back is in the 1600s. It was 1700, Corey, and I haven't shown. I, I should send you the new stuff. Actually, I could I could do that maybe over the over the Skype thing. Um, I've actually sort of reverse extended the uh, the tree to go back to I think about 1540. Um, so. It starts in the 1500s with and and then goes through to the present day, and uh, every book is a is a sort of a different story of of one of these different uh, individuals in the Krogan family, um, and it's sort of bookended by a father telling his sons you know some kind of parable in, in about about life using um, using a family. They're great middle reader books, um, and you know and Chris is fantastic. And you, until recently, you were also. Uh, a professor at the Savannah College of Art and Design, right? Yeah, I was down at the Atlanta campus for, for five years. I was teaching down there, and two before that I was in grad school. Um, and I, I really, I loved teaching the whole time that I was there, but it, it partially it was me getting more, e- either slower or more careful about how I drew, depending on how you look at it. Um, and I, an increase in, in the amount of students per class it went up when I started. It was 12, and then they, it shot up to 20. And that, once that Ooh. changed, it really changed my ability to, to actually get work done. And so I was unable to, to finish projects and teach at the same time. And so that, that's what led me to stop teaching. So what I saw, last time I saw Chris, I was in San Diego. And I had just got done watching over and over, because as I do when I draw sometimes, watching Quickly oh, Down Under. Oh, man. Okay. I would, I, you know what? I just did a rough for a poster for that. I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, please do. So I bump into Chris at San Diego. We meet at a bar. And he's got the Quigley mustache <laughs> and little soul patch and the scarf around his neck. And I said, hey, you trying to look like Quigley? And he goes, yeah, absolutely. And... In my mind, I pictured him on a hill, and a thousand yards away, this bucket shoots into the air, and he and he reaches his hand out and goes, "Bullet!" And his daughter goes, "Dad, we're a thousand yards out." He goes, "Cut it off!" Because he's researching. <laughs> but it's so funny because <laughs> I want to compare Chris's level of research to what Corey and I did, right, which is, you know, well, this is going to be on a pirate ship, so I need to build a pirate ship, and so he builds the whole ship, and he's meticulously making sure things to scale, and he's researching things, and and he's get, he's got all these pirate books from the library, and blah, blah, blah. and then we're like, I don't really understand perspective. Fuck it. Look at Brian Hurt to draw the perspective. <laughs> so then the thumbnail comes in, and Corey and I spend two days trying to figure out where this one panel is wrong. And so finally we call Brian. We're like, why is this panel wrong? And he's like, are you using my perspective? Don't do that. Because halfway through the panel, he got coffee, and when he came back, the perspective reversed for the second half of the panel. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh and I and I inked it. I didn't Brian, know Brian, Brian was uh, doing stuff with you guys until I went and, and saw him. my my dad was passing through Nashville on the way to St. Louis and uh, and I I uh, he was only going up for a day and I was like that's perfect. I can go see see uh, Brian. So I went up and popped by and he was showing me some of the the Table Titan stuff. And you were like, I thought Table Titans <laughs> looked like a six gun. <laughs> So yeah, so Brian Hurt, uh, who's the the artist on the six gun, he does 
uh, layouts, which is it's interesting. I think layouts is one of those things that isn't done in comics as much anymore, but it's uh, I like it. I think that there are some people that are really good at at sort of composition and mm-hmm. and looking at something in terms of sort of like a a grand scope in a in a film and kind of goes back to to the episode the other week where we were talking about people getting all uh, fussy about some something being cheating or something not being cheating and I don't get that. I don't understand why more people aren't aren't, you know, using uh, layout artists for that kind of thing. I think it's probably I, I I feel like it can benefit from it and some of my one of my very very favorite comics um, had like 14 people on it, which is weird because usually I'm such a such an enthusiast about being able to see the hand of the artist. Um, but some of those early like Marvel Indiana Jones comics have I think like Byrne is writing them and maybe doing layouts and then there's a bunch of other people on it but uh, there's one that it's it's just a bunch of different people including a layout guy and it's just a, this perfect comic and I I do think it can benefit because some guys are really really good storytellers just in terms of like doing the, the composition and some people are great draftsmen and I, I do think there's something to be said especially if it is a, an ensemble comic for bringing all of those different skill sets to the table to create because because at the end of the day you're you're trying to create the best reading experience for your audience yeah that's your, exactly that's your obligation and we're big on collaboration at at uh <coughs> at toonhound studios and you know when it comes to Visual storytelling. Uh, uh, if anybody has not read The Sixth Gun yet, uh, it's oh. by it's by Cullen Bunn, Brian Hurt, and the colors by Bill Bill Crabtree. Um, go pick it up, and just just to get an idea of of what an amazing visual storyteller Brian Hurt is, don't read it. Just flip through it, and just you can just look at the pictures, and you will know exactly what is happening in that issue from it, beginning to end. It feels like European without trying to. European, um, in in that sense, there's yeah, a lot of really people that it, yeah. try to ape the European style, and it usually feels it. But but that's one of those tendencies that I think a lot of those really good French books have is that you know if it's like Pierre Allery or Matthew Bonham or something like that, you can pick them up and not speak French like I don't because you know I'm a Philistine, um, and so I'll, uh, <laughs> but I can read those books and have a very clear sense as to what's going on, and I think that 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 Six Gun is exactly that same way. Although you do want to read it because it's a god. Well, because Colin's a great writer, and yeah. I, I, in my opinion, there is no better single issue writer than Colin Bunn. He's like to me, he's like the undiscovered talent of the comic industry. Which, frankly, thank God for that because he yeah. probably wouldn't be he wouldn't be doing Six yeah. Gun if uh, you know if if the and he does work for the big two, but if they were really taking advantage of his talents, yeah. he would not be available. And I love and the thing is, and I, I've read some of Cullen's other stuff and and the and some of Brian's other stuff so far as you know what what he's done. Just because I'm not, I, I don't know, I'm a completist when it comes to people whose work that I like. But I, I like the two of them. You have to complete the artist. You have yeah. to read all of their stuff. I have to read all their stuff. <laughs> Even, you know, like uh, <laughs> that, that stuff you do when you're like 22 and stuff. It's not, it's not very good. But I, I think that the two of them work so well together. I think that, that Cullen brings out the best in Brian and Brian brings out the best in Cullen. Um, and so I love, you know, like the Damned and Six Gun. Like I love reading those. Let's switch to the subject that Chris wants yes. to talk about. So this week we're talking about uh, critics and criticism. The, the relationship between a critic and a creator, the relationship between critics and fans and fans and creators, whether or not criticism is beneficial for the artists or, or if it's just self-serving for the critics, 
And I think uh, this applies really heavily to new media, which we talk about a lot, because in this day and age, anybody can can be a critic. Everyone's <laughs> a critic. <laughs> but more, more so than ever. I mean, it used to be people had an opinion, right? I might have an opinion on something, and within my circle of friends, we have an opinion. But now, in the age of Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter, anybody can be a, 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 a even well-respected, in some cases, critic of artistic work. <laughs> <laughs> this is a long oh, yes yeah well yeah, it's true yeah. it's true um, no it is and i think and and well what the the reason that that i i wanted to talk about this and i think scott wanted to talk about this is this came up via a, a twitter conversation that that originally I, I don't know exactly what what it sprung from um i probably didn't read the the the, the initial tweets i have a bad habit of getting on twitter seeing whatever somebody most recently posted and then just commenting on that and then getting off twitter but I, I think that because of the, the context of the, uh, the podcast, uh, the surviving creativity, you know, if there are, if there are people that are, are coming into the field, I think it's, it's important to have a, a sense, even anecdotally, about what you can expect from criticism, especially now that it's changed so much, um, like Corey said, with the, uh, with the sort of self-published criticism. Um, which isn't to necessarily devalue the self-published criticism. I think there can be some some in-depth stuff that can be can be really well done, especially folks who have been around for a while. Like I, I like reading Tom Spurgeon's stuff. I don't always agree with it, but I, I think that it's it, it tends to be when he when he spends time on a piece, it tends to be well written. I actually think Tom is a really good example of a of a modern day <coughs> good critic. It, just in my opinion, yeah. Tom's good. And, and I, I mean that in that he's, you know, he's not going to give glowing reviews to everything, but when he has a beef with something, there's reasoning behind it. And it tends to not, I, in my opinion, and, and I, this is partially why uh, I, I left uh, marketing uh, when I was doing it and in the comic industry was because working with these, uh, these critics, these reviewers, and these journalists is difficult. Their biggest concern, nine times out of ten, is getting clicks. Mm. And the way you get clicks is to write the most inflammatory thing you could possibly come up with. Yeah. I mean, it really is. You, you're going to write a byline, and it's going to, especially in the days of Twitter, you're going to write a byline that's 140 characters or less, so there's enough space to get the link in there. And the byline is going to be the most the the most inflammatory thing you could possibly come up with. Absolutely, because yeah. you want to drive eyes to that, to that uh, story. Yeah, you need you need the clicks because you need the revenue. You need the revenue from the advertising, so you need people to come to the site. I mean, it, and and I mean, maybe that's a totally different topic altogether. But I think Tom is, uh, I, I think Tom is a straight shooter. I, I don't always I don't always agree with his reviews, but I think he I think he, you well, know, he, he's he, he he has he gives good like, like you said he gives good reasons for his thoughts, and and they're they're usually if he does come down hard on something it's it's usually a very well reasoned um attack and i i don't think that well reasoned attacks are a bad thing um one of the the thing is i uh, now granted there's going to be loads and loads of bad criticism um and by bad criticism i'm looking at it sort of uh uh so so uh alexander pope was a neoclassicist, I guess. So he he wrote this thing about criticism, you know, 600 years ago. That basically defined a bad critic as being um, self-serving and 
uh, envious that that the the bad critic is basically spiteful because they want to be creating, um, either don't have the capacity or have not received the audience engagement that they would prefer, and so they they prefer to tear down uh, that which. Sure, you're, you're talking. You're talking about the poem, uh, an essay on criticism by Alexander Pope. Which yeah. it, you just just search Pope essay on criticism if you want to read it. It's very good. Oh, I need to print that out. <laughs> and put it on my wall. Well, and especially, I mean, what's funny is he wrote this like in the God 1700s or something like that, and it it has never had more relevance than today, because a bad critic is a self-serving critic, and in the world of new media. The everyone has to be self-serving, right? Yeah. Because that's where the revenue, you know, follow the dollar. That's where the revenue yeah. comes from. So, never, never before have we had so many self-serving critics yeah. in, you know, in an industry. But I don't think that that means that all criticism is bad, or that all negative criticism is bad. I think that no, not at all. Um, I the 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 contrast of that, and it's the the one that I tweeted, is the the idea that the the artists and the critic sort of as an abstract concept haven't have a an interdependent relationship and that if the that the artist can use the critic as a means by which to improve his or her art um that that a good critic will will draw attention to on a on a on an individual level if we're talking about an individual artist and piece of art um will draw attention to the problems that an artist is facing uh, in a particular work where it falls short and the artist can use that criticism to improve in subsequent things. And that's happened to me once. Generally speaking, I, I feel like I have good reviews, but I'm also a very optimistic person. And so there can be a review of one of my books that's like, the the art was really crappy, but the story was charming enough to carry it. And I'll come away with that. They, they thought I had a charming story. Like, I'll, I'll, uh, um, so, so it helps to have that mindset to not be as, as flustered by things. Um, but, but with the first book, there was like a, a dialogue criticism that a couple of people had, had posted about a thing. And they, they drew attention to about four or five things that I was like, those are all really good points. And they're ones that could be systemic and I'm going to address them in future books. And I think that that's, that that's where criticism can be. That's one area where criticism can be really helpful. Well, that's, that's great. And I, I mean, that's a mature outlook I, I, that I wish I could have more of. But <laughs> here's my question to you guys. You guys keep talking about good critic and bad critic. And, and how, do, how do you know Who's a good critic and who's a bad critic? And I'll, and I'll give you an example. Not too long ago, there was a there was a dust up on on Twitter, and I forget who it was, but somebody uh, was was having their criticism called into question, and this person said, "Well, listen, I used to get uh, great marks in my art classes in high school, right?" And mm -hmm. and and this person was using this as a justification of why uh, they could do comics criticism. And to me, in my ears, that sounds like saying, well, listen, I scored well in biology in high school, so I'm ready to operate on your grandmother now. You know, there's, yeah. there's a big difference <laughs> between doing well in, in high school art and having the chops to do actual art criticism. So my question to you guys is, how do you tell who a good critic is? Uh, I think for me, it has a lot to do with, with a number of factors, okay? Uh, intent is one, uh, and I also think that the critic's um, 
critics well, see there's because there's different it's all context right because I mean and then Chris you know this because you you taught at a uh, at an academic level but there's academic criticism where and I, and I went to college I went to art school so there was a there was a a time every week when the projects got turned in and it was time for the criticism and everyone put their art up and the whole class went around and we just tore each other's work apart not the most fun day of the week it was never fun but we were all in it together and nobody saying anything about your art was not also someone that was about to have something mm-hmm. said about their art and and the intent and the and the intent in the context of it was improvement and we were all kind of in it together um <clears throat> so and, and and even then when the intent is to be helpful it was difficult to hear it um, because it's always oh, difficult yeah. to hear it. If you're doing art right, you're going to be invested in it, and it's going to hurt if somebody... It's, draw, it always it, hurts. I mean, it's basically, they might as well be saying, you know, your, your nose is really poorly shaped for the mm-hmm. size of your face. I mean, there's no way, there's no way to... Ta- now, the plus side with art, and I would try to do the, the critiques as much during the in-progress stages as possible while it was still uh, possible to to alter it um and and i I mean there there's definitely something to be said for finishing a project seeing where its flaws are and and using those principles in your subsequent work but i also think that if you can get that sort of critique as you're working on a project it makes it easier then it's not so much that your nose is bad as that your makeup is bad well imagine so here's how i describe most online quote critics these days okay the online critics, the bloggers, would be like if I was in the middle of an academic critique with my painting glass. We've all done paintings. And in the middle of the critique, the janitor walks in and says, I like this painting because it has flowers in it, but I don't like it because I caught this guy masturbating upstairs in the third floor staff building the other day. And then he walks out. That are, that's the, those are the, and then he's like, Pedro out and drops a, the fucking broom and then analogy. Yeah, I mean that is that is it. Now, imagine if the janitor then came back in and said, I've been doing this for a while now and I'm pretty sure that my criticism is as art as much art as oh. your art. All right, well now hold on. Before we move on to that topic, because that's <laughs> entirely But hold topic. on. The the thing is like mm. like Brad, we're and listen, I'm since they're gonna call out my art, I'm not gonna not call out their names <laughs> i was bending over backwards <laughs> here's no 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 you're talking about joanna carlson yeah, draper I, right i don't think draper carlson with, with talking about people specifically no i think it gives people a context no, no, no. to go in and check out the sure criticism and see where folks are coming from what you caught the tail end of last week chris was why is there no the the twitter thread that started was someone wrote a blog about why is there no good Web comics journalism. Uh, why is there no good web comic yeah. criticism yeah, out there? And the answer that this guy came up with is because, well, the guys who make web comics are big babies, and when you criticize them, they attack I you. I saw snippets of that. That's that was go. That thread was going on for a while. It went on for a while. Uh, uh, then Joanna came in and said, "I didn't really ever seen that. The only time there was ever a fight was 
that classic fight with me and Scott Kurtz, which is a little trophy that she dusts every month and keeps on her shelf that we had a fight. The fight was over this. The fight was over her saying that her blog, where she criticizes other people's work, is as much art as the art she's criticizing. Because she's a writer, and that's art. So that's what the fight was over. But look, like Brad, you, everyone was saying Spurgeon was a straight shooter. Okay, but let's take mm-hmm. Gary Tyrell at Fleen, who reads a lot, thinks about art a lot, is very invested, has very, very good, well-thought-out, well-researched articles. But fucker wants to be in the club way too much for me to want to read his stuff. He is behind the booth at Dumbrella every year in San Diego. I mean, when I go to conventions, it's hard for me not to be around webcomics people. If there's a panel that I'm asked to be on, there's usually webcomics people there. Um, I tend to run with webcomics people. I can't fucking trip over something without standing up and Gary fucking Tyrell is there with his mustached <laughs> smile because he is attached to the hip always to someone in webcomics. He's gotten himself invited to determine who gets nominated for the webcomic Rubin Awards. And then he goes online and complains when he feels that it was a little bit unfair, even though he kind of helped decide who gets nominated. So it's hard for me to remove all that. Yeah, well, well see, that's just it. I, I, because I, I understand what you're saying, and, and, and there's a lot of, of, of issues that are, that are kind of interspersed in there. The, you know, as far as his being involved in that group, I kind of got that because it was like he was involved in it but it was also a, a bigger uh, project than just his involvement. And so I could kind of see where he was uh, making that post where he thought that it, that it didn't go the way he thought it should have gone. But, yeah, but he's—what I'm saying is—and I don't know the rules because I'm not a journalist, but why wouldn't you recu- recu- recuse yourself? I think right? it's probably like, tricky no. in the comics industry especially— because so much of the, if you are dealing with news stuff or industry news or something like that, um, having a clear, if you're, if you're recused, then uh, 90% of what happens in the industry doesn't end up online. It's stuff you hear at conventions. It's stuff you hear back and forth. It's how you learn that this guy is a sleaze ball or that this guy is a sweetheart or whatever it might be. Um, and that can inform your viewpoint of how something's happening. So I, I think that there can be legitimate uh, legitimate craft reasons to to want to involve yourself in the sure. community so that you can make a better informed thing. Scott, don't you think that, that that's part of Gary's job, that being there is part of his job? I mean, I'll, I'll use, to, to just to back up a little bit, I'm going to use... Uh, Do I feel like it's a part of Gary's job to be John Rosenberg's guest at the Rubens the night he wins the Ruben? During the award ceremony where Gary was on the committee to help nominate people for the Rubens. Okay, no, I don't feel like that's, that's a part of his fair. job. <laughs> now that, I, yeah. Great. No, I don't feel like Granted, that's a part that, of his that job. That doesn't look great. But what I'm, uh, what I'm saying is... Uh, on a website called Fleen that John started. And John Rosenberg won that fucking Rubin mm-hmm. fair and square. The next year, after he had won it, he went online and launched about how the NCS is a bunch of fucking dipshits and he hates them 
But he won the award fair and square. But no, that's not a part of his job. That's what I'm saying. It, it clouds it up. Now listen, Roger Ebert might have been getting blowjobs from starlets. I, I don't know. I'm not a no, part no, no, of that what, world. I, what I was going to bring up was his, his relationship, uh, and this is something that he's been criticized on or that he was criticized on in his life, was his relationship with Kubrick. They were very close. And he positively reviewed the majority of his films, mm-hmm. with a few rare exceptions. I think that that's a he, fair yeah, criticism. Yeah, he came under fire all the time about it. And um, the, the, to back up even a little bit more, something that I was going to bring up was uh, his his description of reviewing things. Because uh, when we were talking about Joanna, and, and uh, even before her, we were talking about people, somebody saying, "Well, I, you know, well, I got good grades in an art class or something like that, so I'm qualified to review." Uh, just using him as an example because everybody is familiar with with Roger Ebert, um, he had no background in what he was doing. Yeah, he re- he reviewed films, and he was very clear that that his reviews were were relative and not absolute. That he was reviewing a film based on other films of its uh, of its consideration. So. You know, for him, uh, I'm, I can't remember exactly what he was talking about, but he had he had talked in the past about uh, uh, different um, uh, sort of comic book movies or whatever, and and someone had asked him something about Hellboy. Is it any good? And he says, Well, you know, I'm not going to compare it to Mystic River, but when I review that film, I'm going to review it against things like The Punisher or Superman. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 uh, The Punisher is a, is you know this then Superman is this, then Hellboy is this. You know, if Punisher is one star and Superman is four star, then, Hell, then Hellboy is a three-star film. You know, if American Beauty is a four-star film, then the United States of Leland is a two-star film. And, like, everything was done in, in relative terms. So going That's, way, way that, back... That goes straight back to, to Alexander Pope, too. He called that genial criticism, where you, you judge something based on others and its genre. Sure. And I, I think the problem that we get into with comics is that People tend to lump comics all into one category, you know, like like they just go, oh, all comics are comics are just comics. It's the equivalent of saying, you know, what do you? Re- I review books, all right? What books? Because that would be the next follow up question to anybody that yeah. said I review books. Mm-hmm. Well, I review horror. I review, you know, pulp fiction. I review YA yeah. novels. Whatever. You don't. Nobody ever does that with comics. The 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 comics journal people do. Um, they they tend to focus pretty much exclusively on the sort of what you'd call either art comics or literary comics and they tend to their criticism tends to be very formalist for my taste like I don't I don't really enjoy it because they talk about aspects of comics that don't matter to me yeah I feel um, the same way about about comic journal but I think that they but I do think that they're doing that but I think that they're the exception and I also think that as a result of that it's not a particularly um uh uh, it, I'm trying to think of what the word I'm looking <laughs> for. Um, it, it 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 doesn't necessarily benefit the average reader the way that. No, I feel like comic journal is, is more of an of more of an academic kind of thing. It, and is, it can come yeah. across as a little snooty sometimes, but a little to, little to, snooty. Yeah, a little I snooty. I read it and I I uh, but I, but yeah I think it's. I, but to but jump it's our back, snooty version. Well, to jump back to, to Gary, with the exception of the Ruben thing, which I actually thought was a little eh, eyebrow-raising as well, I've never had a problem with Gary being around webcomics people and, and at conventions and that kind of thing. I, I sort of feel like that's his job. And he doesn't just review comics. He's, you know, he's reporting on comics. It's, I know he's reporting on comics. I understand that. 
I just, and I know that he likes what he does. It's just. Well, propriety is important because it does give a, it, it can give the impression of, of, uh, of nepotism. And that's, that's. Uh, he's our, he's always hanging around the same group of people. Well, anyway, Gary's very fair in his no, reviews. That's, that's I'm not. Just, that's just I don't, the point I'm trying to make, though. Gary doesn't really review anything. No, he he just no. reports information. I mean, I, I, if I had to make a uh, criticism of Gary, he do, he he loves no, everything. <laughs> if I were to make a, a criticism of Gary, is that really what what he's doing is is almost what I call a, a press release journalist. In other words, you send him a press release, and and he's gonna it's gonna end up on fleeing if it's any decent. That's like ninety nine percent of the yeah. Of that's the bigger, that's ninety nine percent of journalism these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, so, and, sadly, and, and which Corey that's, taught that's me, and well I'm, and I'm grateful for all those that education. <laughs> and I'm and I'm well, believe me, I'm thrilled every time I see you know Evil Ink on fleeing. That's a great thing. But he but he doesn't necessarily go into uh, a review. But but here's here's another thing because this is something that I've said like for years, whether it's right or wrong. And that is that I really have a hard time accepting criticism from someone unless I consider them a creative equal or better. In other words, if somebody comes up and says, well, I don't like Evil Ink because X, Y, Z, I kind of take it or leave it. But if Scott says, ah, you know what, I've noticed you're doing this other thing and, and you know, I either like it or I liked it the other way or something like that, then I take that much, much more seriously, uh, in the same way that I guess I had a little bit better feeling knowing that Roger Ebert uh, tried to make a movie uh, and failed, you know, The Valley of the Dolls. Uh, it, it was a flop, but just knowing that he, that he was in there and ex had that experience of, uh, of, of going through that process of movie making might have made him a better critic. Uh, I, I I don't know. That that seems like that feeling almost runs counter to what you're saying, Scott. I, I almost want my critic well, that, no, to have because a that's, skin in the game. That's, but Gary doesn't have any fucking no. skin in the game. He's Chris Farley's character walking around going, also, "Remember that but time? He's also it's pretty not cool, a huh?" I don't know that you can put him into into that category. No. What? I, look, the difference is this. There was a period. I've talked about this a couple times. There was a period uh, a couple years ago in PvP where I started going more and more realistic with it. I wanted to. Learn how to draw women better. I wanted to try to get a little more realistic. I don't know. I was on some kind of kick, and I was heavy mm -hmm. into photo reference. And it just kept going and going and going and going. And then pretty soon it was these photorealistic bodies with mm -hmm. the cartoon heads on them. And it looked terrible. And I was unhappy with it, but I was heading in that direction, and I was getting a ton of email. Uh, and I was, I was getting some criticism online about how Scott's cheating, he's, it's all photo reference now, blah, 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 blah. And it was affecting me, but, I, you know, I went into Krahulik's office and I said, because uh, at the time I was officing at Penny Arcade, and I said, you know, I'm catching a lot of shit for this. And he said, look, every artist goes through this. You, we don't have the time to fill up sketchbooks and dick around and go rent a house in the woods, go rent a cottage in mm -hmm. the woods and play. We kind of experiment live sometimes because we have such a daily schedule. And an artist will sometimes just follow this path in one direction and go all the way down to the end of it and then see what's down there and go, okay, mm -hmm. and then head back. And that's what you're doing. And you're going to go all the way to the end 
and you're going to see what's there, and then you're going to retreat back to center. And you're going to take everything that you've learned, and you're going to apply it. And no one likes following you down that path right now, but just go. It's fine. You're going to come back. You're going to bounce back a little bit to super cartoony, and then you're going to hit in the middle. And the difference between, in Mike's opinion, and the critics and the emails, they all have the same opinion. Right. I don't like this. But the difference was that Mike understood why it was happening and what was going to happen and why it was beneficial for me. And so that was more helpful for me as a creator than someone going, this different, no like, mm -hmm. stop. You know, and, and it's not the fault of the person emailing because their concern and their feelings are valid and genuine. But... They don't have the experience or the context in which to be helpful. That doesn't mean they shouldn't email me in the slightest. The problem I have is when someone goes online, makes a Tumblr, <laughs> considers themselves a critic, and says things like, Scott's art is crap, PvP never was very good anyway, and I don't like the way he handled himself on Twitter that yeah. one time, and then afterwards demands that I treat them with the respect that I right. would Krahulik for saying to me right. what he said to me. Because they haven't so, put the time in. That's, that's the thing they, that, 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 that it comes down to. They haven't put the time in to, to, to earn that Well, they respect. don't have the context. They don't have the context and they don't have the perspective and the experience. And that's not good or bad, but the difference is that the people that email me and say, I don't like this and I don't know why, but please stop. I don't get as mad at them. Mm -hmm. It hurts. But, um, I mean, look, it's just like uh, when it, John Oliver on Last Week Tonight, the one I watched last night, he showed uh, about 15 clips of different people saying what they don't want their tax dollars mm -hmm. going towards. And everyone has a different thing they, what, of what they don't want their tax dollars going towards. Everyone that emails you has a different thing as to why your work is bad, and they all contradict each other, right? So um, it makes it very difficult to try to improve yourself by, by that uh, input. You know, it'd be different if someone emailed you and said, I don't like Shecky. Don't ever put <laughs> Shecky in the comic again. It's dumb. I stop reading when you do it. You're wrecking your comic strip. By the way, you have to take my work, what I said seriously, because I'm a critic, and if you don't, then I'm going to tell everybody that you can't take criticism. And what does I that make you? This is the issue that we're having in this day and age is that a critic can no longer stand on what they've written. And, I, you know, we're sitting here talking about this, and I am hard-pressed to think of someone in the industry right now that I consider a, a really good comics critic. Well, yeah, that's exactly. I'm having a hell of a time, and for me, it's not. I mean, I I well, think this is where this is where I kind of hit a divide with you guys. Is to you, it's like the person reviewing these comics, the person that's going to be this this mythical critic that maybe one day will come along, has to have some kind of, you know, experience and be able to draw and this that and the other thing. And to me, it's like no, I I I think you're both wrong. I think the person just needs to have done this long enough, have read enough, have. Uh, you know, seen enough and understood enough to be a, a really good critic of comics to 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 be able to do to come back to Ebert that that relative not absolute thing. Well, you know, you know and, I think. Oh, sorry, go on. 
Well, and I was going to say, and be able to have an argument on it. I mean, the thing that I always loved about Ebert was that he embraced new media. He embraced the Internet. And he was not afraid to go to bat uh, uh, for his reviews mm-hmm. with anybody. Yep. With anybody. And it, to him, it was never – it was always a subjective argument uh, based on an objective thing, which was the film – he he was never about going after the individual, even if he didn't even if he didn't um, you know if he didn't respect the person, he just wouldn't argue with them. And in in some cases, if he didn't respect the person, he would still argue with them. The problem with the critics today is they get petty immediately. They immediately get it becomes the you know yeah. yeah like well like Scott said well you have to respect me because I'm a critic and if you don't what does that say about you? It's like well it says go fuck yourself, buddy. <laughs> like I don't have to agree with you. It's not my my job is not to. Well, agree I mean with that's you. that's what it's come. To. It's come, first it was, first it was. Here's my criticism of your comic, and you say that's not very subjective. And they say, listen, this is why your comic sucks because the minute anyone criticizes you, you go right. nuts. And you you need to learn how to improve. Mm. How are you going to improve if you don't take anyone's but you know, criticism? If you look back at some of the, uh, you know, it, it's easier to look at writers and their relationship with the critics than it is comic people because there isn't that much. But if you look at, you know, most of the, uh, if you took, you know, first half of the 20th century, uh, any 10 of the the folks that you would think of as being like the, you know, greatest writers of all time, most of them had very antagonistic relationships with with critics and just were very dismissive of of criticism of their work. Um, And I don't think that lessens their status as as a writer by any stretch of the imagination. Well, yeah, it, it, you've also got to take the time into uh, context there, too. Back then, critics had a lot more power because it was concentrated yeah. into the hands of few. Uh, I, we've got neighbors here that uh, are involved, uh, they're involved with 1812 Productions here in Philadelphia, which is a comedy uh, theater troupe. And they had a, a, a get-together. They were getting, you know, a focus group is what they call it. And so they invited me over. And the one thing that really came through to me is that theater struggles with new media the same way that we do. They're almost more comfortable with this idea of one or two newspaper theater critics that they have to worry about. In other words, if, if, if the theater critic for the Inquirer gave them a thumbs up, they knew what they could expect in terms of business, and they could plan their calendar around that. They would either extend the show or, or you know, it would cancel it next week and put something else up. And, and and I heard from them that they, they really struggle now, that they don't have that experience of a single critic. Uh, they've got, you know, Yelp and, and bloggers and stuff like this yeah. that they've got to contend with. And it's like trying to nail Jello to the wall. Well, that happened oh, in yeah. that happened in the um, the book, the print industry as well with books, with uh, prose um, and the the. The terminology that marketeers used for it, and this was a few years ago uh, before I was taking off, was mommy bloggers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these were, they tend to be uh, uh, moms, just stay-at-home moms, and they started blogs. Uh, and it happened in, in the thousands. I mean, there were thousands of them. It's and huge. now uh, they're the big publishers, the big companies, and we've talked about the big five in the past, they will uh, they will go find these women, and they will fly them out to New York mm-hmm. gratis, and they will put them up at fancy hotels for a week, and they'll do you know quote unquote seminars with them, and they'll feed them, and they'll show they'll give them new books, and because somebody at some point was able to connect the dots to track certain sales data back to the blogs 
of of these women. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the purchasing power in there, especially when it comes to YA and kids books. They had the purchasing power in their family. They had the readers. They had the audience, even if the the individual bloggers themselves were unaware of it. Um, you know, and it's just another way in which these people are are uh, these marketers are are sort of putting a pin in the like, oh, this thing is really effective, and this thing is really effective, and this thing is really effective, and that's been such a major change, you know, with new media and the internet and new technology is like, it's it's hard as hell to figure out where a bump comes from. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may have a bump in traffic or a bump in sales or a bump in whatever, and the internet being this vast ocean, it's finding a drop of water in an ocean of, you know, of reviews and criticism and, 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 and one-ups and thumbs-ups and, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like... It's a hell of a time to track down. Well, so that, the, I guess that brings us back to the to the idea of where do you find a good critic? Where do you find good criticism? And the more that I have this conversation with you guys, the more that I'm kind of coming to the self-realization that I don't accept criticism. I accept peer review, uh, but I don't accept yeah, do. criticism because you were talking about, uh, you know, that, that you thought a critic, Corey, was somebody that had done just enough writing and just enough art and, and had, had done this up to a point where they were, you know, had, had experience in it. And even I was talking about, you know, Roger Ebert having skin in the game and everything like that. But it came to mind when you were saying that, that there's a word for someone who's that started out being a writer and an artist and took it a certain distance and then stopped and is now just writing about other people doing it, in my mind, that's a failure. Right? <laughs> I, if you were, no, if you were I, good I actually, at it, you'd be doing it yourself, I, not writing I, about I, other people doing it. And I, and I know that's, that's sharp words, but, uh, it, but that's how it, internally I feel about it. So I don't know that I want to take that opinion. I want to talk to somebody who, like Scott, who's been doing it every day of his life for 15, 16 years, when he says, you know, uh, you know that this punchline is weak, when he says, you know, this line art is, is better than the one you did before, that I take to the bank. But I'm I'm actually I'm reverse of what you're saying, Brad. I I don't believe that someone has to have done it to a certain point. I think that someone can just be a a reviewer, but they have to do it. That it has to be what they do. Yeah. I I was gonna say that I think that 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 uh, attributes motive in a way that isn't necessarily uh, applicable. I think that one of the it's entirely possible and, and very plausible for someone to find that they have more of a passion for theory than execution. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. And I think that the best criticism is not necessarily criticism of individual works. And I think this is where we get hung up on the definition a lot is that for me, the best criticism and the stuff that lasts is not a criticism of Habibi or a criticism of PVP or a criticism of Evil Inc. or whatever it might be, but is instead a broader definition of criticism that's talking about the medium or the form or a genre or something like that in a way that benefits future artists because they can read about it, better understand what they're doing and really um, and, and incorporate that into future work. Film Crit Hulk, I think, is a, is a good example of someone who is ostensibly a critic, but is, is really more of a general theorist. And I think that, that those theories are, are uh, I forget the, the, uh, the, the, the word, but basically it's, it's sort of quantifying the, 
the data and presenting it in a way that can can serve as a teaching guide. The <clears throat> the problem is, well, one of the problems is that just as the the gatekeeper has been removed for creators, it's been removed for bloggers. So you get anyone that can throw a comic strip up on a Tumblr site saying, I'm a professional mm -hmm. cartoonist, just like you get anyone that can throw up their opinion on something that they're a professional journalistic critic. So what you end up with is a lot of people with an axe to grind presenting themselves a certain way, and that's going to always elicit, at least from me, a negative yeah. response. I think another big problem, especially from the artist's perspective, is that, and this is, this is good for those of you out there listening that, that like to listen, but you're not creators yourself. They're, they're, it's very rare that there is an artist or a creator out there that doesn't hate everything they're doing while they're doing it. I mean, believe me when I tell you that the stuff we're making gets self-criticized a lot. We are our own mm -hmm. worst critics already. We beat the shit out of ourselves constantly. Um, it is a struggle every day just to post stuff um, because it's just not as good as you wanted it to be, and you got to put it out there. So it's very rare that you'll meet a creator that draws something and goes, <laughs> shit gold again, <laughs> you know, and puts it up, and then they see that someone has criticized it and went, but this is perfect. I don't understand. Who the mm. hell do you think you are? I mean, that's a unicorn. Mm. So um, keep in mind when, you, when you're criticizing someone's work, you're criticizing something that they already <laughs> were pretty unsure of to begin with. I don't know why we're so uh, pissy about it. But the, the problem is, is just, just like it's hard to pick out who's this really um, dedicated artist Who's, who's, who's got a good handle of the craft and is a professional as opposed to some kid who just threw something up and it takes a while to kind of pick them out from each other. It's equally as difficult to, upon first glance, realize who's just written something about your work that is actually, you know, uh, like Chris said, very interested in the theory and who's someone that's got an ax to grind and threw a Tumblr up, you know, or a Twitter comment up. So, I mean, that, that, there's a disparity there as well. Um, because before, before the internet, where would you have seen anyone's mm -hmm. opinion? Yeah. You know, and, and the other thing to remember, and this is the hardest part for me, is that a lot of times the criticism is fandom. As crazy mm -hmm. as that sounds, there's nothing that I liked more than marathoning some Star Trek TV show with Straub, and we would just tear it the fuck apart. And at the end, it was like, see you tomorrow? <laughs> see you tomorrow for more of the same. We love Star Trek. We love, love, love Star Trek. But mm -hmm. we tore it up. Every episode, we tore it up. And we would, we would say to each other, God, if the writers of this show were in here, they'd think we hate it. So now imagine if we were live tweeting that. I don't know why we would, but mm -hmm. people do. 
I mean, imagine live tweeting it and, and the writers see it because that's possible yeah. now. I mean, I remember, I remember tweeting about Frozen and how much I really, really enjoyed it. And the lead, the guy that was the head animator mm -hmm. tweeted back. Like, that's where we're at. I wrote a post for one of the comic news sites. It was like a what I'm reading this week type thing. And, and I mentioned in it that as a rule, and it, it's less the case now, but, but back then I, it, it was a rarity for me to pick up a dual, um, a dual uh, writer. Or I mean, a a a a, um, a, a team book. Um, mm -hmm. uh, usually, I would I would generally prefer to to pick up a solo cartoonist because, <clears throat> and this isn't the case anymore. But at the time, you know, especially when I was trying to learn the craft, it helped to see what individuals were doing. It just it made it easier to to process and 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 pick apart uh, from a from a learning point of view um, but I think in passing I mentioned you know it's I, I feel like it's equitable to an author thing to like a book thing like I like Dave Barry and I like Ridley Pearson but I, I and although I'm not gonna I haven't read those Peter Pan books even though I like Peter Pan because the idea of reading a novel by two authors is weird to me <laughs> And I got a, an email from Ridley Pearson that was like, hey, give it a try. And I was like, <laughs> and it's that same thing. And you're like, I, it's, it's a, I'm very careful now about what comments I make in passing for that exact reason. Because, you know, somebody else has been working on this. And the only time I ever really call out something is if I feel like it is very clearly hacked. Um, mm -hmm. And even then, I'm attributing motive where I may not know what the situation is. And that may not be the case. But usually it's... I feel like sometimes you can tell, um, or if it's, I, think that I don't know. Yeah. The, the sad part about all of this that, that we're discussing right now is that, um, not that good criticism couldn't exist, but that I think it's harder now for good criticism to exist because of the interwebs. It's too easy for somebody to pick up on a, uh, a piece of criticism in which somebody says, you know, well, this is a, this is a four star comic. Here's what was great about it. Here's a couple of things that, that bugged me, but the creator worked around them in this way, right? Mm -hmm. All somebody has to do is take that one line that says, here's, here's the one piece of negative criticism and jam into 140 characters and tweet it. And I think that has caused some individuals uh, to go the opposite direction with the whole, if you're not going to say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. one, of, one of my favorite uh, I don't, reviewers, but I want, I want my critics to. If, right. Well, yeah. One of my favorite uh, comic reviewers, and she doesn't do it much anymore, is uh, Blair Butler. She's an amazing comic yeah. reviewer, and I mean amazing. Um, but she was also in a situation in which she rarely, if ever, posted a negative review of a comic. It didn't mean she didn't have a negative opinion of a comic. It was just that it, she had a limited amount of time, and why spend you know why spend my time she would do these video reviews called fresh ink for uh, g4 tv yeah. she it, to her it was like why spend my time negatively reviewing this comic when instead i can positively review these five comics that i loved and send people out to get the good stuff right yeah and i think that too is a is a uh uh 
that is that is the result of this you know this world of new media but uh i would love and i i don't know if she'll ever get back to it but i'd love to see blair start reviewing critically reviewing comics and she's one of those people that um you know, is a writer in in her own uh, in her own right, and does and does writing. She's made a career of writing, um, so you know, I think she fits the bill for guys like Brad and Scott as well, who feel like this person, you know, a person to truly be a critic has to also be doing it as well. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that we're now in a world where you're going to get one of two types of critics. They're either going to be the like Scott and Chris watching Star Trek, where they're just going to tear shit to shreds on a regular basis. And let's face it, that gets clicks, right? Mm-hmm. And I sometimes mean, it can be in itself good writing is the is the sure. downside. I mean, like if you read the like cracked articles or like Chris Sims stuff or something like that, it can be very engaging and and well written and a, a good essay in and of its own right, even though it's hitting easy targets. I guess very yeah. easy <laughs> targets. And again, it's like. You know, to the people listening to this show, both uh, both creators and and you know readers alike, keep in mind that the a lot of this stuff, particularly online, comes down to the bottom line. It comes down to dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. If you write an article in which you inflame the public, it's going to get linked around. I mean, just good good criticism, good reviews, or or posting positive reviews just does not move. But it's also, I think, a little irresponsible. I mean, uh, but that's my opinion. Look, there are reviewers that I really like and I have liked over the years. And I and and after you get to know them, and I think it also comes down to being kind of a, uh, a, a responsibility on the consumer's part to be a savvy consumer. So I read Comics Alliance, but I know what axes they have to grind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I know they're link baiting, and I also know that they're going to... Uh, they have their little things that that they do to. They got they got to run a business. I mean, it's what it's like you say about being a savvy consumer. You gotta. Uh, you gotta I don't listen. What I don't from, from the they message. don't gotta run their business that way. That's sure. how they run their business, and and um, they know how to manipulate the fanboys. So. Uh, you know, every article is going to remind you that Stan Lee is a monster who robbed Jack Kirby at gunpoint of all of his rights and then ran around throwing dollar bills in the air. The the most egregious example of that was the one that that we were having some fun with a couple weeks ago where it it had Stan doing a rant about how he doesn't like to sit through the credits at the end of a movie and Comics Alliance came out and said, uh, well clearly Stan Lee doesn't like the ends of a movie. That's the only place you could possibly see Jack Kirby's name. And they're they're almost making it out like Stan Lee's a vampire and Jack Kirby's name is a crucifix. You know? And he goes... that's, that's <laughs> running away as soon as he sees it, it and it's like wow you can it's you irresponsible can really and it's also stretching. it's irresponsible and it's also uh borderline inhuman because the well, man's yeah. 91 you motherfuckers <laughs> you big you big fucking man sims i'll fucking call you out sims you're a big fucking man attacking an old 90 <laughs> year old you fuck you who who could have been born and died twice since Stack, Jan and uh, Jan and Stack, Jack and Stan were in an office together, but you fucking know what went down in there. You fucking God, I hate that guy. <laughs> Cut that out in post. <laughs> Look, I've talked to people. Corey and I have talked to people who knew yeah, Jack who were, Kirby who were in the room. Who were in the room? 
I will listen to them over Chris Sims. But but <laughs> the reason why those people that we've talked to, <laughs> this is the, one of my favorite stories. So Corey is talking to some person who knew Jack Kirby, and they were discussing my blog post about, um, you, this was a couple years ago when I wrote, hey, guys, um, a lot of people are telling you that the Avengers movie just came out, and you should feel guilty about buying a ticket and not taking the cost of that ticket and donating it to the Hero Initiative because Jack Kirby was robbed of all of his rights and none of the heirs are getting any money and this is a big issue and you just spent $30 on a 3D ticket and none of that money went to the people that made the comics, so Mm -hmm. give to the Hero Initiative. And here's what I'm saying. One, uh, the Avengers movie is a combination of everyone that's ever touched the Avengers since Jack created it. There's Simonson's in there, John Burns in there, Perez, Busiek, um, Jurgens. Everyone that's ever touched it, Miller, Hitch, everyone that's ever touched the Avengers, a little bit's in there. Also, your $30 3D ticket went to pay the right people. It was all the cast and the crew and yep. the, the executives that mm-hmm. made that movie. I mean, like, a lot of people made that movie. A lot of money was spent and to the make that movie. And operating at a loss that screened that movie for and you. The, right. Absolutely. Spent, spent all that spent 50 grand on that fucking <laughs> 3D technology that we all know is going to go away soon. Right. <laughs> all that money went to the right people. Third... Uh, the Hero Initiative is a great, great organization to give money to. None of that money is trickling down to the heirs of Jack Kirby that I am aware of. Certainly, that's not how it works. Also, you can't get Jack Kirby any money or credit because the mm-hmm. man's dead. I don't know if, spoiler <laughs> alert, the fucker died. And you can't, unless you have a time machine, which we all should be known to go back in time and meet Linda Carter and in 1977 and shake her hand (laughs) the only appropriate use of a time machine but if if unless you have a time machine or a necromancer you're not getting any fucking money to jack kirby okay that got translated into kurt is a corporate apologist and jack kirby is and stanley is a monster and those guys will never let go of that they will always bring up that i'm some corporate apologist that i'm a victim blamer that will never end and that's fine i'm Perfectly fine with it. But my, I told you that's where I was going to tell you this one. So, so Corey ends up talking to this person who knew Jack. And he's like, ah, Jack knew what he was doing. He signed those contracts. He had a company, and he made other people sign similar contracts. And Corey's like, oh, my God, will you say that in public and defend Scott? And no. This person was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I won't. Well, that, all the people who are there are so <laughs> over it. Oh, we've totally it. transitioned this from uh, uh, criticism into something That's completely okay. different. Oh, I, let it run away. <laughs> I know it's so dumb. No, but w- what we should do is really do a whole episode about this and and get get Katie on too, because uh, you know this case is coming up again, and and the Supreme Court is deciding whether to view it or not. They're they're not going to, by the way, for anybody listening. I seriously doubt that the Supreme Court is going to do anything with work for hire anytime soon. They just reviewed it recently in like 2003 and made more changes to it, and it's a giant pain in the ass in a recovering God. economy. I get so mad at extended at, at that's work like, for hire that's, extensions. That's and like and s- copyright the, extensions in general. But mm-hmm. here's the thing is like all the stuff that I just said, take any person who's posting any of this link bait and say that to them and they will look at me glass-eyed because they have not read any of the – I believe there's three cases now or two trial cases that have happened already with this thing. They have not read – 
any of the briefs. They have not read any of the decisions by any of the judges. They have not read the the petition to the Supreme Court. They have not, like, nobody sat down to read this shit. But they all still feel like they can, they can comment on it and that they can be a source of, of information on this right. shit. Like, that's, that's the thing that gets me. And that's just journalism as a whole. And this is, I, I'm trying not to get too ranty because this is a big, big reason why I stepped away from the marketing end of, of comics when I did, uh, when, you know, when I left Oni Press is because I saw it going downhill quickly. And I knew what was happening. I was following the dollar. I saw what was happening with advertising media and online media and, and ad buying and the, and the, the consumer too. To, if you're listening and you're, you know, and you're a fan or a listener or a reader and you're not a creator, please, for the love of God, wise up. Like really, really smarten up. Ninety <laughs> percent of the stuff you're reading online right now is just wrong. Was, yeah, was paid was for. Paid for, man. Well, also, and, I mean, oh, sorry. No, it's I. I'm sorry. I'm just ranting now because no, it's, it's fine. It's, well, you can see that that stuff occasionally, like where it's like, uh, oh, one of the one of the biggest ones that just bugs me is in my Facebook feed. I'll have people post that things like, "Bet you can't name a city with the letter A," and it's, it's. It's, of course you can name a city with the letter A, and every time you type into that, it, it, it registers as a, as a follower or a click or something, and then that, that particular ad machine makes more money. Right. Um, and that yeah. type of thing is, is... But also nobody, nobody checks their sources. Everybody... I mean, like, Pete, you know, you'll, you'll get a quote up that's like such and such, Abraham Lincoln. And it's not Abraham Lincoln. It's this guy in the 1950s or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> or, or it's just and, a completely, utterly made up quote. Yeah. That, that is just. <sighs> and that's one of the things I know, that yeah, we're definitely uh, giving up going into new media. I mean, as much as we all kind of have made derisive comments, me uh, certainly uh, among the forefront about newspapers, that was one thing that newspapers were really, really good at. Every fact that went into a newspaper back in the day not only had to be corroborated by a professional reporter, but then a copy editor would quiz these guys. I would see it happening in the newsroom, would quiz these guys at night before anything got into the paper, making sure that they were at least confident and could back themselves up every every last story was treated like that now it's just type it up and hit the send button yeah because in that day and age you put something in print like that you would get sued yeah absolutely wasn't there a wasn't there i think it was an astro city thing i think it was an astro city kurt might have written this oh no 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 but there was some some reporter went down and there was a big superhero fight in the sewers okay and there was an explosion, blah, blah, blah. And then she comes back, and she's like, what of this can we print? And the editor says, you can print there was an explosion <laughs> in the sewers. Yeah, cause, cause, because that's the only, the only fact. source. Right. Right. So the only thing that everyone knows is there was an explosion in the sewers. That's all you can write. And so the story didn't get printed. And you were like, oh, no, that's true. You can't write that. Where these days, if Kurt wrote the story she would have tweeted exactly. from the sewer <laughs> in the sewer fight yeah. happening big, big explosion but not like that roll. like um <laughs> it would have been it would have been it would have been this superhero spotted new sewers is are we safe right. yeah you know With so a link to an article that she 10 was posting things from my the editor sewers. doesn't want you to know 
<laughs> get, get the word weird so yeah. in there somewhere, and you've got Tying, a winner. Tying this back in, tying this back into criticism. Like, is this the problem? Is it the problem that nobody wants to read? Yes. Is it is it that the the nobody wants to read good criticism anymore? Is is the oh. lack of good criticism the fact that I want to read good criticism, but but well, I don't want to hate. My thing is like 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 I mentioned earlier, the criticism that I like to read is is almost never criticism about a particular thing. It'll bring up particular things in it, um, and use them as as examples. But I think, but you know what? I mean, although he did it in in comic format, I I think you know McCloud's a good example of someone who switched over to criticism, and I think that McCloud's books are criticism. In, in the sense of those being uh, in the sense of those being sort of uh, analysis of the form um, and I forget where I'm going I just uh, there was a beep on the computer and it through my mind so never mind <laughs> it completely derailed me <laughs> well i, I want to bring it back to what Corey said because Corey, i'm telling you you really hit the nail on the head in saying that you could write really great criticism, but no one wants to read it. There's no, no market for that it. anymore. Nobody no. wants that. What they want is the meme. They want the 140 characters. That's all anybody's got the, the attention span for anymore, you know? To, to bring it back to um, film, and I, and I do this partially because it's, it's a widely understood medium, but, um, you know, Rotten Tomatoes has replaced Roger Ebert. Yes. Which and that does bother me. Because yeah, it well, really has. Good film criticism is. And, uh, and in case you're unfamiliar, RottenTomatoes.com is a website that uh, that does film criticism. But their, their film criticism is a it's they've taken ratings and they've applied a percentage to them. Yeah. Uh, and basically, what they've done is they take all of these critics, all of the critics, uh, and they combine all of their their ratings and they they apply a percentage to it out of 10 based on a certain number of reviews and then they give it a percentage yeah and uh and you know and then they'll do an audience percentage as well or a number of audience members that want to see that kind of thing but even before the death of of ebert who and i bring this up a lot there's a documentary out right now that you should go and see uh, about his life this this i can't bring myself it's, to it's watch rough, it man but it's well worth it um I just forgot the name of it. <laughs> I just, I it's, just. Saw uh, a thing I think about it's it. called. Uh, it's life. called Life Itself. Mm-hmm. Um, even before he passed away, he had sort of become overtaken by this. Uh, what is an aggregate site? Yeah, and it's it is that whole idea that we want this shit in a snippet. You know, it, it, in the same way that Metacritic has taken over all video game reviews ever. And I do it, too. I go, hey, should I check out this movie? Well, let me look at Rotten Tomatoes. It used to be that I would say, well, let me look at Ebert. Because he and I tended to have similar opinions on films. We would we would disagree at times in places. But typically, I could read one of his reviews and immediately go, he didn't like it for these reasons. But that those reasons aren't going to bother me. I'm probably going to like it more than he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing. I, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a, I might take a little less cynical view of it. Uh, I don't think that, I don't think that we're getting that because that's what people want, and people don't want to read a review, and people don't want to do these things. I think that 
people are taking it because it's easy and it's what they're given. I think that people would be informed and would watch the news if they were given news to watch. Um, I just think the signal to noise is too, the disparity between signal and noise yeah, is and too And when we great. talk about that, because this, this is a terminology we use mm-hmm. quite frequently on this show, it seems like a signal to noise is the, you know, the signal is the message that is what is actually trying to get across and the noise is everything around it. So you'll have, yeah, but you'll I, have I, I don't know if I agree with I, you, Scott. I, I, I mean, there, there is good, there's really no, good I, news out there for people to access. There, for example, the stuff that my in-laws are always watching, you know, Democracy Now! There's, uh, there's uh, the McNeil uh, News Hour on PBS and, and, and all this stuff that's very, very good reporting. People are not flocking to those channels. It's not. It's not that they're not flocking to the channels. It's that there's, they're uninformed there's about too where much to go. noise on on the cable. There's too much the for them to find it. For them nah. to know. I, I, I disagree. I, I think people necessarily... know that they can find good journalism on on PBS. It's just that they'd rather see uh, the the. the the I don't stuff know that. that's going on on Fox instead because it's it's more glittery and and fun to watch. I disagree. No, I, I think most people don't necessarily understand the 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 difference. It's just it's a it's a taste or experience thing, and you might not realize that that Fox or CSNBC are both you know horrifically skewed one way or the other, and that you're not getting a balanced viewpoint of of either. I think that 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 uh that fact-checking site just published a thing that was like it was like 60 percent of the statements on fox news are either miss whatever or outright false and like 40 percent of the ones on on uh msnbc are um and it's and it's it's you know neither one and it's because you're trying to fill so much so much airtime with so oh, yeah. little information yeah. you're extrapolating to the point or, or deliberately misinformating or misinforming. But, but, but what I'm, what I'm saying is, is I want to be informed. Yeah. I want to take the time and I don't necessarily yeah. know where to go. And people tell me all the time, BBC news, Al Jazeera, NPR. Yeah. And, and, and so but it's still difficult to be informed. But it's also, I think, also, um, and John, did you hear John Oliver's interview on Stern? I did not, uh, no. Brad? So John Oliver is doing this weekly show, kind of weekly, daily, daily show-esque show on HBO called Last Week Tonight, where every Sunday he reviews the news of mm. the previous week. Um, and it's essentially the daily show, but he talks about subjects. And one of the things he discussed was there's a news story they want to do that they've put off because they're still researching it. So it'll probably be in a week or two. But there is a, a hedge fund that was able to delay the launch of a warship of a sovereign nation because that nation owed the hedge fund money. And just at a hedge fund, like five Wall hmm. Street douches, could delay the launch of a sovereign nation's warship is a news story they want to do. And Howard's like, why haven't you done the story yet? He's like, we still don't really understand what a hedge fund is. (laughs) 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 They're researching what hedge funds are. Because they want to make sure they get it right. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's responsible. Yeah, they want to get it right. Despite the fact that it's comedy, 
the Daily Show in general, I think I, it's, and I think that's one of the, re- but you know what, actually Daily Show's a really good example. Um, it, it, I think that people will flock to something, uh, and granted, they, ma- they make it flashy and glittery, but it's, it's presented in a way that's, that's charming, you've got a charismatic host, and as a result, you've got a lot of people. I think Ebert was sort of that same way. People would tune in, even if they weren't necessarily going to the movies, partially because you had fewer... Oh, do we lose them? Who, me? Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, you're yeah, fading in and out. Right. Uh-oh. We, we, oh, okay. You're fading um, in and out for a second. I, I, I moved... Can, okay, but, but I'm back. Hello? Am I yeah, back? Yeah, you're back. Yeah, you're okay. here. You're back. Take um, it from just, Ebert. Yeah, sorry. I moved to Kentucky, which has the uh, the worst oh boy. internet in the country. Now you're going again. Second worst <laughs> in Alaska. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Can I, can I, I'm going to click out and go back in. Is that okay? Did you really move to Kentucky? Yeah, I moved to Kentucky. That's fine. Yeah, this is, this is why we record our own audio tracks, because we can okay. edit it back together. Yeah, let me, let me click out and then call back in. Well, Hold on, you're actually getting a little bit better now. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Um, Do you want to take your point from Ebert? That's about when you started to drop off. You said Ebert Um, also was flashy and glittery. Ebert also was was well-watched because um, Siskel and Ebert, you know, their their dichotomy especially uh, proved entertaining. Uh, And I think that that's a (laughs) big issue with the criticism is that finding you, we have yet to necessarily find that person who's a good balance between entertaining and really strong criticism. You have a lot of entertaining critics and you have a lot of good critics and you haven't necessarily found that that juxtaposition that's going to permit a wider audience that's going to appreciate the good criticism. Okay, so what do we want to do here? <laughs> we missed a big chunk in the middle of there. Do we oh, want to bring man, this podcast in for a landing and, 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 uh, and call it good or do you want to give it another try? We've been going for an hour and a half. I mean, yeah. it's a good place to wrap it up. I think most of what well, he said got and in And I there. can edit it so that it sounds perfectly. But question for you all uh, before we start wrapping up here, um, because, you know, our listeners have been listening to us bitch and moan about criticism for so long. Who can we send people to to read good comics criticism? I got nothing. There's got to be somebody. Oh, I mean... I like Spurgeon. I, I like Spurgeon best. Um, yeah, and that's the that's uh, but Spurgeon, but Spurgeon's site is so hard to navigate. <laughs> um, that's it that's really the is. downside. I mean, like with anything, but I think that that there's a difference. I think that he spends the majority of his time researching, compiling information, things like that, and so when he presents it, it's just in one big lump. Um, well, that's it is a so, big dump so of comics, information comicsreporter.com and uh, just some background on on uh tom he's been writing since uh critically writing about comics since 82 uh he was the managing editor and executive editor at um the comic journal from like 94 to 99 um i don't know how long he's been doing comics reporter i feel like almost that entire time so he's one of those guys that is has been in the thick of it for a long time. He definitely knows what he's talking about. Uh, and in a very odd turn of events that will seem odd, I if you're into web comics, I do recommend. Yeah. Fleen- <laughs> no, I, I, listen, this is not this yep. is not an odd turn of events. That 
Uh, and and well, this is like what you were talking about with the uh, with the tweeting of with the live tweeting Star Trek. You can like something and still have a lot of issues with it. Yeah, less. In Gary fact, you probably that, have more issues with the things that you like than the things that you don't. Sure, less Gary think that that there's some hate going on here. Fleen is a great site. Fleen.com is a fantastic site. I mean, the the a little <laughs> that's, just, that's just you. That is not <laughs> that's. I don't know. I don't think that Gary was unaware of my problems. No, no. But but his, his it's it's more of a uh, he's an example for conversation. But uh, if you want information on uh, on online comics and new media comics, Fleen.com is definitely the place to go. Um, Gary does cover. I mean, just everything. And another yet another site that is like info dump site. Uh, every day you're just going to get bullet points of everything that is kind of everything that has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, I. I I am hard pressed to think of more places to There's, send people. I like um, it, it's it's a much more narrow and specific thing, but generally speaking, I like School Library Journal. Like they that that yeah, man, what? absolutely. Actually, that's a it's slj.com, it? School Library Journal. Um, they do comics criticism. It's mostly um, books for like teens and down, uh, but. They, they, no, they do fantastic. Uh, we we know a lot of people who write for them. Um, Bridget Alverson, who, in, in my opinion, is one of the last true journalists left on this planet. God, I love reading Bridget. Oh. Yeah, Bridget. Bridget Bridget's writes good. some amazing pieces. You and can read her there. For, she writes for Robot Six, and I think yeah, that, that she writes of, for Robot Six of all as well. Of, the, of all of the big, uh, the the big sort of, a lot of times like what you said, like the uh, the, the press release sites. Um, I feel like Robot Six does one of the best jobs of uh, of sort of presenting the information in a journalistic way. You know, I think that we we didn't really cover um, the big news sites. You know, the the comic book resources and well, the newsarama and that kind of thing. Some of them, some of them are are terrible, like beyond terrible. Yeah. Uh, but I think the, the problem with the, the the big conglomerate comic news sites is it all depends on who's posting. Like yeah, I it does. I agree with you that Robot Six is, has much more of the better stuff than other places. They're doing some amazing reporting, and you can you can read Bridget Alverson's stuff there as well. She uh, really, I mean, like it's, I'm sure she's listening to this blushing, but I <laughs> I believe she's one of the last true journalists yeah. out there. I mean, I've I've seen her do some serious legwork. Uh, in order to write a piece, and she is from, uh, you know, an old school um, uh, newspaper background. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think maybe that's why she does it that way. And um, you'll also notice that she does not post as much as a lot of other people. And I think part yeah. of that is because she is doing the legwork. Um, but it seems I'm trying to think. It seems like on Robot Six these days, it's mostly her and Kevin Melrose do the majority of the reporting there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not super familiar with Kevin's work. Uh, uh, but yeah, comic. I think Robot Six is a good spot, and that's robot6.comicbookresources.com. Um, School Library Journal is slj.com. You're going to get a, more of a mix there um, of a variety of things um, and stuff you might not know about. I think that might be how I first heard about Luke Pearson's stuff, which is, I think, some of the best comics that's been made in the past five years. Like they're extraordinary, but they 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 don't really have as much traction here as I think they should. Yeah, Tom Spurgeon, and he's uh, he's comicsreporter.com. I can't, you know, I 
I cannot think of anybody else. <laughs> anywhere else <laughs> I do wish I thought people. about it. I well, tend to not read very much, uh, very much criticism. Um, I, I mostly because most the the criticism that I find most helpful. I'll read a lot of interviews, uh, but the criticism that I find most helpful is the stuff that is is sort of general more generally applicable how can i take this criticism and apply it to my own work rather than do i want to read this particular story i'll know whether i want to read it by glancing at it well yeah i'll just throw this in at the risk of sounding like i'm just uh trying to be nice to my friend but there is one uh, uh podcast that i that i really enjoy the level of criticism and the and, the, and they talk about uh, uh comics uh, and, and even comics, movies, and stuff like that uh, on a real uh, deep level, and that's the one that Scott's on, Comic Dorks. I, I listen to that regularly, and the level that you guys talk about uh, comics-related issues, I really enjoy. At, at, at the risk of, of sounding like I'm just trying to be nice. <laughs> um. Major spoilers mm-hmm. is a pretty yeah, good Yeah, you know, the major spoilers is pretty good as well. That's another kind of... Um, mashup site where we've got a bunch of different writers writing in one place uh, that's he does not the thing I like about major spoilers is the guy that runs that he is not happy with link baiters mm-hmm. either and um, he does try to avoid that as best as best that he can yeah major he's not he's not just mm. like major link spoilers baiting. is a good site you're gonna get a lot of pop culture news there um, so, uh, as we wrap up here, Chris, you're the first guest we've had in a while that has not answered our five questions. So we haven't had we haven't I, had I to ask remember right. what the I five questions about are that. because we haven't had to ask them of anybody in a while. We've had these guests on that have all answered the questions before. Oh crud! Uh, oh, all right, so now we got to remember what the five. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember them. I feel like it should be like. Oh, now I'm now I'm now I'm in that position where you know I watch inside the actor's studio and I was like, "What? You're having to think about this? Come on, you should know these going in." Uh, I don't even know what the questions are. I don't remember. I think it was, "What is your definition, or what's your greatest failure?" Well, there, oh, and there's a couple in a certain order. Oh, jeez, it's, it's funny. <laughs> it's, deep, man. it's funny to me that none of us can remember. Uh, what's your definition of success? That's um, one my of definition them. Definition of success. It, it changes a little bit. It, it's it's slowly changed to include money. Um, uh, basically being able, (laughs) my definition of success is being able to do something that you are enthusiastic about and that, that ethically you can stand behind. Um, and uh, yeah, and be able to support yourself or your family on it. Um, that, that's, that's mine. The, the second question is, tell us a story about your greatest failure. Uh. There was that time I built the pirate ship. <laughs> no, um, okay, so I was on a, and this is actually kind of probably what, what pushed my, my, the craziness that led to the pirate ship stuff into overdrive, um, and also classroom stuff. So I was on a panel about uh, comics canon. Like, it, it was like an academic-y type panel, like Heroes Con, maybe three years ago um and we were talking about different things and i was addressing the the issue of well i was talking about like who some of the most important people are uh in in comics or things like that and i was arguing a couple of points um that should a should a, a 
comic artists be judged by virtue of their own work or by virtue of their legacy? Like Alan Moore's own work is pretty astounding. His legacy is terrible, uh, I think. I think that, that the, the work that he did was misinterpreted by subsequent writers who took the worst aspects of it rather than the thematic underpinnings of it um, and ruined superhero comics. Uh, so like that, that would be one example. But I, I was talking about Eisner and how I feel like Eisner's greatest success is his old age, not his spirit stuff, and that, that he subsequently is one of the best things to happen to comics, but also one of the worst things to happen to comics in that he was really instrumental in getting the, uh, the assembly line method of comics off the ground because that sort of immediately, in its very early stages, robbed it of artistic legitimacy and the cultural viewpoint that he later spent his later years trying to, uh, trying to, to fix and bring back and, and destigmatize comics as a disposable, cruddy hack art form. Um, and I think that he should be applauded for that later stuff, but I think that too often we forget that, that early thing. And uh, Paul Levitz was in the audience, uh, who is a publisher of DC Comics. Um, and uh, he, he yelled at me um, about the Eisner thing and was like, that's, that's bullshit. And, uh, and I think he probably had a personal stake in it because basically because of the Alan Moore thing, I was saying that a lot of the comics done under his reign were, were bad for superhero comics. Um, but, but he was saying that the Eisner's, because I was going off of Eisner's uh, own accounts of, of sort of implementing the studio system in his studio, which had a lot, or the assembly line thing. And he's like, there were comics making, making assembly line studios for like a good like three, four months before Eisner ever started doing it. Um, but getting, getting called out on a, like a fact check publicly really upset me like a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that, and, and because of that, that put my time into prepping my classes, like it extended it like three or four times because I, I wanted to make sure that every single thing that I talked about was was solid, set in stone. That there was nothing that I wasn't prepped for. And so I would I would read everything. If I was doing an animation class, I'd do like two hour phone calls with animators, like trying to make sure that I understood like every conceivable facet of stuff. And it just really sort of sent me into this tailspin of preparation. That's now where I'm trying to come back from. But that that's one where I really feel. Uh, I mean, I don't think of it as a it. I I don't look back on it as regret as a failure, but it was a thing that at the time really affected me as feeling like I had failed in a public sphere. Thanks, Levitz. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, uh, what is your process? Um, it changes radically with each book, and it changes because I try to develop kind of a universal theory of how narrative will work. Um, and so I'll, I'll write these like long outlines and figure stuff out that I assume will, that are, are variations on stuff that I used to use uh, to try and make them to where they'll be applicable for all future books and then I won't have to do it again. And I always do it again, which basically leads me to think that I'm just wrong about the idea of there being 
<laughs> one year at Universal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll do that. I'll do I'll basically like go in and try to outline stuff according to my my whatever my current thoughts on how a narrative should be outlined. Um, and then once that's done, I've found that my best method is to have a an outline that for for roughly one one page of prose for every 10 to 15 pages of comics. Um, and then I will just go straight to thumbnails or pencils from that and write my dialogue as I go. Um, and then that that's usually it. It, it. Depending on what project I'm working on uh, depends on whether I'm doing my, my art traditionally or digitally. I'm d I do the Krogan art traditionally. Um, I do the Creeps art digitally. Hmm. What's your trick? Oh. Do I, do I try not to give yeah. away any of the good ones? No, no. I'm, I, uh, in that something I wish people might my, my cheat that I, I try to keep under wraps or like a, uh, a means by which I, something I'm proud of that I figured out. It's up to you. Oh, man. It's easier to figure out the, uh, the the cheat thing. Okay, so 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 my big cheat, um, which I'm fine with. My my argument is that it's only cheating if uh, you get caught. Um, if people can look <laughs> at it and tell that that tell how something was done in a way that negatively affects the reading or viewing experience. Um, so like after you learn about bullet time, using bullet time as a cheat. Um, in a movie because it, it, it draws you out of the thing, whatever. Um, so my thing is that for w not always, but uh, for weapons, uh, like if it's a specific type, like, like rifle or something like that, um, no, I don't even do it all that much. Sometimes, sometimes I'll use SketchUp and use the, uh, the line thing, <coughs> drop it into, you know, adjust it to where it fits my thumbnail, drop it in and trace a vehicle or a... Oh, uh, that's everybody, man. That's something. not... Yeah. There's nothing cheating about that. <laughs> that's, that's, that is an excellent trick. And uh, we just recently did an episode about... Oh, yeah, I listened to it. it was yeah. Good. No, there's um, no... There's no... That's not cheating. That's a great trick. It is everybody, a great trick. Everybody the, should the, use that. The trick is to draw over it. I mean, like, I think that the, the problem is there are some people who will drop it in and... You just see that it's a, like a SketchUp background or a right. photo background. God, the number of photo backgrounds in newspaper Sunday strips pisses me off to no end. <laughs> um, I, I see that. What are you, what are you I, talking when, about? I, I'll see, like, there, when I was in Nashville, I'd get the Sunday paper, and there would be, like, three or four strips that would fairly regularly, if they had, like, a busy background, would throw a background of a city or outer space or something mm -hmm. that's just a photo. And I was like... You know what? You're you're syndicated cartoonist. You there are certain expectations of quality from you. I expect to see that background drawn. Like there aren't a lot, that's one of those situations where I, I I feel okay calling somebody out about it because I feel like that's that's hacky. Like 
anyway, that, that, that's, no, that's I, my, that's I'm glad point. you brought that up because I've noticed that too, and it makes me crazy. And, and I actually wrote about it, uh, geez, a couple years ago at webcomics.com. And one of the members was immediately like, well, what about the amazing world of gumball on, uh, on Cartoon Network? And, and that use that mixes up all kinds of different, uh, visuals. But I think and it's that doing I don't... so in a very specific collage mentality. Yeah. And I think that that's part of its, its general aesthetic, whereas if you put it, you know, I mean, like High and Lois didn't do this, but it's like if you threw a city background in High and Lois, it's gonna wreck the 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 verisimilitude of the the entire piece. Yes, I can't think of one syndicated comic strip where a photocopy cityscape in the background wouldn't look weird. The, no, it sticks out, to me, it sticks do. out like yeah. a sore thumb. Was it like Brenda no, Starr? Was, was it like in a in no, a gag strip? It was strip. in a gag strip. That's that's the thing that made it extra huh. gruffy. And it, and it, and it, it's one of those things that sort of calls to mind. Like, is it doing something? Because it was sort of a, it was it was like playing with the idea of doing those you know post Watterson like big panel splash things, but it was doing so in a way that right. wasn't presenting any of the 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 content like the the things that made those worth doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I feel like, uh, yeah, trace them. But I also, if I'm doing, if if I am ever tracing, you know, like a, uh, I, I don't ever do it for people, but but I don't know that I've ever do, done it for environments. But if I were to trace an environment, it's something where it's like, it's got to be, and I, I couldn't because of the way that I do my, my ground perspective and throw people in there. Um, but it would have to be something where I'm taking those pictures myself. Like, I feel like that's a big part of it because I need it to match the, the, the movement of the page. And you just can't do that with, with grabbing. With somebody else's photo. That's a really interesting one. That's why I like SketchUp is because you can angle it to fit your composition rather than having to, to match the composition that some photographer used. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, for our final question, give give uh, give us one piece of advice. Just realize that's not a question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Would you give us one piece of final advice, please? I can give I can give lots of life advice. I'm trying to think of uh, it's the the, uh, the advice yeah. is yours to give, however you choose, <laughs> my friend. Um, Joelle Jones was <laughs> <Yeah>. brushing teeth. <laughs> Don't wipe your ass on the towels. Yeah. Oh God! <laughs> wipe your ass the towels. No, no brush no, your teeth. Brush your teeth. Um, God, that cheek destroyed I me. still makes me laugh. Oh man, Jiminy Christmas. Um, uh, yeah. When when you get married, merge your bank accounts and never think about whose money is whose. That's a good one. Oh, what? A- oh, Chris, I don't know what the fuck <laughs> you're talking about, dude. <laughs> You gotta keep that shit separate. You've only merged your entire <laughs> lives together. It's important that you keep something as trivial as money separate, so you know exactly what each person is spending you money know, on. Oh, I've never understood that. I don't get you're that being at sarcastic, all. Of course, you've never understood people keeping separate accounts. That that keep separate I, bank I accounts. Know, well, some people do. No one it is. Just, it, it flabbergasts me. Um, because that's yeah, me too. If you're working in a creative field, um, there are going to be long stretches where, like when when I first started out, uh, Liz, Liz doesn't work anymore. She she's a stay-at-home mom. Um, but when I uh, when I was first starting out, you know, I, I was in grad school and wasn't making any money, and she was carrying us like entirely. 
Um, but there was never any resentment on her part any more than there's resentment on my part now that 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 I'm bringing in this stuff. It's it's very much a what's best for the entire unit for the partnership um, thing, and I think that a lot of people will have this sense of oh well this is this is my money I can do with this or. And, and that, I, I feel, is just immediately going to always drive a wedge, especially in a creative, in a, in a marriage where one is, of the people is a creative person. Is separate bank accounts the new prenup? Uh, Isn't it like an yeah. unspoken oh, wow. prenup? It says that we can go our separate ways very easily. It's a it's yes. a ripcord, yes. right? It's or it's a ripcord. Their, 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 their separate books. They keep their now. I understand. I understand books separating <clears throat> if you are both like crazy book people who have a certain like shelving situation but i also know people who like keep their books separate in like case of breakup and i feel like if you're keeping stuff separate in case of breakup <laughs> you probably shouldn't be living together i'm so happy by the way that chris used the phrase jiminy christmas uh and talked about money uh because and i'm gonna bring this i'm gonna bring this full circle because i because i know this podcast has gotten some very polite good-natured uh criticism about uh our use of expletives uh, our, our our swear words that we've been using and uh and it just so happens i've been keeping a swear jar over here this is the tom bancroft swear jar and we're up to about uh, $3.56 uh, this episode alone. But I want to tell you uh, uh, what I'm going to do is My I'm going to take was this quote. money uh, to, from, the, from the swear jar and uh, buy Tom a pair of headphones. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, by the way, I, I listened back to a few episodes. But, and this is actually a great wrap up for this episode because it's talking about a piece of criticism that we all took to heart. I listened back to the episodes and I thought, man, we don't swear that much. And I'll, I'm going to honk all this out in post, but I'll be fucked if it's not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> oh, it's me. It's, it's got to be man. me. I thought, it was, I thought it was mostly Scott. I thought it was Scott, too. And then I went back and listened <laughs> to a few episodes. And the, the fuck face who's fucking it up all the fucking time is me. Oh, fuck. Listen, all I know is that it's so integrated into my into your vernacular, normal yeah. language that Corey and I were on a business call <laughs> with a triple A game company, and I used the phrase, knock his dick in the dirt, <laughs> during the call. You and I are basically mammoth characters. Like we <laughs> <laughs> I think that wraps it up. Thank you so much, Chris Schweitzer. Amazing having you. Check out his work, uh, the Krogan Adventure series. The first book is called Krogan's... Uh, Krogan's Loyalty. No, Krogan's Loyalty is one of the most recent books. The first it's the most recent Krogan's, Krogan's Vengeance. Krogan's Vengeance and is actually, the first one. For, for you trivia buffs, uh, one of the kids that, uh, that gets talked to is named after Corey um, because uh, he was such a, an instrumental part of getting that series off the ground and such a big help to me when I was starting out. And there's a Sergeant Kurtz in there somewhere too, right? What? There is, yeah. There's a Kurtz yeah, in there. Yeah, there's a, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Scott, there's a, there's a Scott character in the third book. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah Corey, I'm in the third book, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a yep. Hessian, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you're a Hessian. Because you had talked once on, Two on out of three Twitter ain't bad. about... Uh, maybe it was Twitter. I can't remember. Swing uh, about, and miss. Um, I think the movie The Good German and how that sort of uh, directly uh, infers that Germans are bad. Um, and so, Hold oh, on sorry, a second, yeah. Chris. Take it easy, Brad. 
Sorry, are we? Am I? Am I just Corey. sending us back down the path? I'm sorry. No. No, you talked over a, a pun that Brad oh. made, and he's secretly in the background <laughs> stewing. Here's, what was the pun? I missed. That no one heard his pun. Brad lately too. I've been because you you mutter to yourself in the background all the time, Brad, and I've been cutting them out and saving them. <laughs> yeah, we isolate. So we can isolate Brad's voice because we, all, we all record separate our voice separately. And every episode, Corey finds this little thing where where Brad will go like, uh, yeah, la, la, la. And then the, con- the, con- the conversation continues because no one caught his pun. And then he goes, because, you know, X, Y, Z. No one got my, no one got my joke. <sighs> and it, but very, I think Scott. he doesn't realize we're picking it up on the mic. And I'll, yeah. be, I'll, see, I'll be editing through the episodes and go, what the fuck is that tiny sound in the background? And I'll kill everybody's yeah. track. And there's Geiger in the background. He did it the other week on the uh, Dutch uh, Masters. Dutch I, I made a brilliant Dutch, Dutch cigar joke. And none yeah, of we're talking about whether Dutch... Whether the Dutch masters drink coffee, yeah. and then he goes, well, what about all the cigars? <laughs> and then the conversation and nothing. continues. And then you just hear him go, Dutch master cigars. <laughs> no one got my joke. <laughs> Sky mauled again. <laughs> Brad, tell Corey the origin oh. of Sky Mall. Oh, my God. I don't know that I know the full story. I know it comes from Web Comics Weekly. And I, ma- I had made a joke about Sky Mall that either none of you heard or none of you thought was funny. And... Oh, we heard it. It was not funny. <laughs> and you went, you went, get it, guys? Sky Mall? Sky Mall? And we go, yeah, Brad, we got the joke. But it didn't, it did not elicit a laughter from us. Like, we registered it mentally. We understood the pun, but it didn't make us laugh involuntarily. So that's why there's a gap of time between when you said it and now this conversation. So... After that, every time Brad made a pun that didn't land, he would go, Sky Mall, Sky Mall. So, <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry because Chris was saying something very important about Germans, and I could hear Brad in the background going, oh, they didn't get my joke. Uh, I guess I guess nobody likes puns anymore. So I was, I was, so I was working on the, the this American Revolution story, and one of the things that since our inception, it was sort of early propaganda, was that the Hessians were these mercenaries that that King George like hired to come over and like murder children? Uh, it, it's sort of what what uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow is kind of rooted in. Um, mm. and, yeah, uh, and uh, it's very much not the case. And and it kind of bugged me that that was sort of our popular conception of them, considering that uh, in terms of people committing war crimes during the American Revolution. British were terrible human beings. The Americans were terrible human beings. Everybody's being just, you know, personal property and and predatory assault and all sorts of stuff is happening. Um, Except from the Hessians. They behave like absolute, like, sweethearts. Uh, (laughs) Aside from all the the killing during battle. History remembers them as the villains. They're the only group there that actually behaves... uh, widespread group that behaves themselves well um, in terms of following the, the, the rules of war. And you can and, read a little about that. That's from the third book, right? Krogan's Loyalty. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, so while I was working on the, the preparation for this, and I was like, I got to have some, some soldiers in the background. Uh, I need like seven or eight like Hessian troops. Uh, Scott 
did this talk about how uh, I, I forget what what platform it was, but it was it was talking about the good German and and your irritation that that infers that that's a rarity, uh, and and in post even post World War One uh, narrative that tends to be the case. Like generally speaking, Germans are bad or outlier goods, um, and I I am always flustered anytime one particular group is is sort of wholehearted i think that like you can you can uh take a political party and say that they're doing but, but a, a cultural group uh within the, from which that that party sprang and, and say that they're all like inherently bad kind of bugged me so anyway so so that was in my mind while i was making those designs so so there's one that looks like scott and his name is is uh i think like sergeant kurtz or something yeah, I have a original art of uh, a page that I'm on. Yeah, yeah. You gave me. And I also I'm I'm also really irritating. And I cherish. I, I, I write all the German's dialogue in German with no translation, um, just because. And I'm doing that in the Chinese book too. That's another thing that's making the Chinese book take forever. Is there are long sequences in Chinese that I have to write by hand? Wow. I'm, an idiot. I'm not a what? big fan of the brackets. Now that what? Translated from. Yeah. Um, so you're going, you're continuing Krogan, but you're also starting a new yeah, thing, right? Yeah, it's a kids horror series, mm. um, and that's the one that that, that sort of pays my bills. Like Krogan, Krogan's is is something that I do for love, and hopefully will eventually pay the bills. But there's there's not as much of a market yet for Hit, you know, middle some, middle reader for middle reader fiction. historical <laughs> fiction comics. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I write them for an adult audience, so any adults who are listening, that hopefully you know you'd enjoy them. Uh, but but yeah, but the 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 creeps is it, it's done through Abrams Amulet, which is one of the big one of the big six. Um, and uh, or they're they're an imprint print of uh, of of one of the big six. Um, and they and it's it's something that the two the two genres that I've always sort of enjoyed working in, although this is the first time I've had the chance to do this, are history and horror. Um, and as a rule, I, I don't like a lot of horror. Oh, crud. Am I, did I shut out? No, no. no you're you're, you're oh, fine. Oh, no. Sorry. We the, my, my little thingy was making noises. Um, uh, so anyway, so it's the first chance I get to do horror, and I get to do it the way that I kind of want to, which is to make it more atmosphere and less gore, but I can still, they're, they're giving me, even though it's for kids, they're giving me permission to make it as scary as I want, um, which was really a lot of fun. So I'm enjoying working on that. And that's what I'm deadlining right now. I have to finish. I had a, we, uh, contracts took a long time to get into play, but the publication date didn't change. Um, <laughs> if it was going to change, it was going to change. It was going to be pushed a year back. And they're like, if you want to do that, we can, but I don't want to push a year back. Um, so I'm scrambling to do, the entire book in a very short amount of time. So I'm having to ink and color everything in six weeks. Oh, um, wow. So I'm halfway through, which is good. Well, that's so Jeez. check out Chris's work, the Krogan adventure series. Um, it's beginning, it begins with Krogan's vengeance, but you can really read it in any order. It jumps around in history of different, uh, different Krogans in this uh, various Krogans in this family in different times. The first one is a, is a pirate story in the, what the, early 1700s right uh yeah uh the second one is the french legionnaires and the third one is during the american revolution and now chris you're currently working on a fourth one uh that is in what, which dynasty in china well this this one it's it's right after the 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 queen dynasty uh collapses the fall of the manchu dynasty 
Um, so it's it's during what's called the warlord era, which is uh, once uh, so so China after they they uh, after the the they overthrew the uh, the last dynasty, um, it actually turned into a democratic republic, sort of modeled on the U.S. system. Um, but the head of the army was like, the only way I'm gonna put the army at your disposal is if you make me president. And they're like, okay, one term. And he's like, sure. Um, and, uh, and that, of course, goes poorly, so he won't give up power. And so then it devolves into civil war, and pretty soon all of China is just broken up into these tiny little fiefdoms with, like, thousands of warlords. So you have this mix of this almost, like, medieval Dark Ages type thing, but with modern weapons and lots of white Russian mercenaries that have come over following the, the Russian Revolution uh, who are basically looking for work slash livelihood. So you have like armored trains and planes and it's kind of this wild west Chinese thing, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Excited to read it. Well, thank you Thanks, so much for, for joining us this week, my man. It was I great really to have you on. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Anytime. Anytime. Thank you for listening to another episode of Surviving Creativity. Remember, to support the show, head on over to survivingcreativity.com. Find out all about it. Hey, while you're on the web, head on over to kroganadventures.blogspot.com. Krogan is spelled C-R-O-G-A-N. You can find out all about Chris Schweitzer, our guest today. His Krogan books, The Creeps books. He's even got a section there for teachers because he writes a lot of stuff for middle readers. You're going to love the site. You're going to love what you find there. And you're going to love the Krogan books. I know my kids do. Thanks again, Chris. And we'll see you next time here on Surviving Creativity.